Welcome to Fortress on a Hill. I'm Henry. I'm Danny. I'm Kagan. We're three leftist veterans that aim to expose the reality of the U.S. military's multiple wars abroad and to illuminate the damage military service does to Americans. American presidents throughout U.S. history have used American military and diplomatic power to force regime change of democratically elected governments around the world. Most veterans come from families vested in prior service, and American generals choose their own, ensuring diversity of thought never interferes with American warmongering. How can we stand by and do nothing while our military kills and destroys lives the world over, while telling Americans that all this death and destruction protects them from terrorists when nothing could be more false? Fortress on a Hill aims to change that. Okay, welcome listeners to Fortress on a Hill. We uh, decided that it was uh, really important that we uh, take this moment. Uh, oddly enough, that just a few hours ago, Joe Biden was sworn in as the 46th president of the United States. So we wanted to take today to talk about our predictions and possibilities for 2021. So we're going to take... Uh, take a john around the globe to a bunch of different regions and we're going to pepper danny because we never do that we never rely on danny for his expertise uh danny has a really great tom dispatch piece coming out on this topic uh it actually comes out tomorrow um and we're going to do a i'm going to do a super fast turnaround with editing and stuff so this episode should be available for all of you to hear tomorrow the 21st of uh, january um and as you're listening today if you see any you know if you see anything that we missed or that that needs to be pointed out more please let us know tell us what your your thoughts and and predictions are for this year we absolutely want to hear them um danny do you want to take a minute and talk a little bit about your piece yeah absolutely so you know, Tom Dispatch is, of course, we've had Tom on, and, and, and we've actually had a number of different Tom Dispatch regulars on, like Bill Astori uh, writes over there, uh, Andrew Bates, which we, we haven't had, but he he writes over there, and, um, you know, Eric Edstrom has, but uh, Rebecca Gordon, of course. When you do an article for Tom, I mean, it's a different kind of place. Uh, it gets like a pretty decent amount of syndication in the mid and upper mid media, including some worldwide stuff. Uh, and Tom is different also in that he likes long form pieces that are like 2,500 words. And he's kind of a brutal editor in like the old school fashion. Uh, but he also kind of helps pick a, a topic with you. You know, you, you have like, and he's old school, right? He's like 74 years old and he like does things like the old correct way sort of. And so you talk on the phone and you go back and forth and you brainstorm. So when he said he wanted me to do one of the early, you know, articles, something that was going to be timed on the inauguration, essentially, you know, he said, how about, you know, something that relates to what we can expect from Biden. And uh, I had actually been working on, and I'm still working on like a broader piece on basically a, uh, an around the globe flyover of like every region and, and making predictions a bit for what might happen there. Uh, because I've been right a lot recently but that's disturbing. Like I'm not as vindicated by that as I want, like whether it was Nagorno-Karabakh or, or certain Biden picks. And now it seems my stuff on West Africa, you know, I've been right a bunch and don't worry, don't worry, it won't hold. Uh, and if it does, we're going extinct as a species. So like root against me, guys. Uh, I'm like Pete Rose. I'm going to be like voting. I'm going to be like betting against my own team uh, because that's best for everyone. But 
he said, okay, well, like, I don't know that I want you to do that specifically, but let's talk, you know, what's Biden going to do in some key regions. And that's kind of uh, what the piece does. It, it doesn't hit everywhere, but it, it hits the general highlights, mostly regional and then just a little bit thematic. All right. So uh, first up, uh, we're going to go take a take a quick jaunt through uh, the greater Middle East, uh, talk about uh, Afghanistan, Iraq, certainly Syria and, uh, and Yemen. Um, uh, for, for my part, I uh, was making some notes this morning about pretty much all those places, but more spe- specifically Yemen, Afghanistan and uh, and Iraq. So right now in Afghanistan, Trump has us down to 2,500 troops. And there is a deal coming to remove all U.S. troops uh, in the next few months that was signed. Um, There's still about 18,000 contractors that are there for those 2,500 troops, although about 4,700 of those are are local Afghans. Um, And my guess, my my thought about it is that the drawdown is going to probably get reversed, um, which is, is, is a shame because it was, it's, certainly been one of Trump's better calls in on the foreign policy stage to attempt to bring troops down there. It was even got so serious last summer that the uh, Congress withheld funds specifically for Trump to not withdraw the troops, actually took the money away that could have potentially made that happen. Um, So Danny, what, what do you think Biden will do with this, especially considering that there is an actual peace deal that is has been agreed upon and that there's an actual timetable for that deal yeah you know afghanistan specifically i'm of two minds about and i'll get that in a second uh i think that a good general prediction that that i've you know been saying for a while in a bunch of places is that i don't think that we're going to see biden do you know Iraq war, whatever it would be by this point, three or 4.0. I don't think we're going to see like a big invasion followed by uh, catastrophic sectarian civil war set off by our own troops, at least proxies, maybe. Uh, I, I think partly, because, mainly because there's no political will for it. And Biden, if nothing else, has shown himself to be the type that is uh, malleable and kind of shifts with the prevailing political winds, which we've talked about when we talked about his general foreign policy. Uh, but also, I think I like to believe he kind of has learned something, you know, from the uh, Bush years of like the post 9-11 era. So I think in general, we're going to see is like a lot of the same, like a very low intensity war as abstraction. Uh, this will be across the greater Middle East and Africa. You know, this general use of proxies, contractors, drones, commando raids and like security force assistance you know like that's how we're going to fight the war it'll be low intensity for america not always low intensity for its victims and its second and third order consequences now afghanistan is just it's i'm very much of two minds about it because biden was basically the best in the senior levels of the obama administration when he was vice president on afghanistan you know i've mentioned before that It's in Richard Holbrook's, you know, death diary, you know, I mean, that they had a conversation where Biden like snapped at him and is like, it won't work. Like, we're not gonna be able to transform the society. I'm not sending my son 10,000 miles around the world to go back there. 
Of course, he hadn't been in Afghanistan, been in Iraq. But, you know, back to these wars, back to the war in Afghanistan specifically to, you know, fight for women's rights. It won't work. It won't work, he said. Uh, and he was a critic of it. I mean, and in general, he's been more of the, hey, let's do uh, counterterror rather than counterinsurgency, you know, lower impact on America. That being said, I everything that we're hearing from like the Jake Sullivan's, his incoming national security advisor of the world, everything that's in their past record uh, and everything that we have seen in Biden's record, which is like a classic hedging. You know, I think that's what I said at the end of the piece was like when it comes to Afghanistan, you know, because Trump didn't pull enough troops out faintly fast enough, thereby making the withdrawal maybe irreversible. Uh, expect a trademark Biden hedge here. And I think that that's true in a lot of places, but it's particularly true in Afghanistan. So a lot of the statements from Jake Sullivan stuff is like, we, well, we won't have any more combat troops or American troops in combat or in harm's way, uh, but not, not the statement of everyone will be gone by X date. I don't think we'll see any of that. Uh, there could be a reversal. It could drop from 2,500 back to 4,000 or something like that. Uh, we could even see like a mini surge of like logistics, special forces and, you know, air power if the Taliban starts to gain ground. My last point on this that worries me, two last points. One, the Democratic Party. I'm afraid of the Democratic Party more than I'm specifically afraid of Joe Biden on this issue, because I really do think that he was almost like a consensus collection of like smoke filled rooms, like we back backroom insiders in the DNC. Like and I don't know. You know, presidents have a lot of unilateral power, but he's going to feel pressure from his own party. And they are they've kind of followed the whole if Trump did it, we have to do the opposite, which, of course, they learned from Trump. Who did that about Obama? If Obama was for it, I'm against it and vice versa. So voting against, you know, the appropriations needed to pull the troops is a, is a worrying signal. Now, one would hope that when Biden's in charge, troop withdrawals could be celebrated by the same Democrats because most of them don't really believe in anything. Right. Let's be clear. And that's, you know, I'm not even talking about the Republicans because, you know, they're dead to me. But th this is, I think, especially after, you know, only 10 of them voted for impeachment or whatever in the House. But I, I, that worries me. And then the final bit is there are interested parties at think tanks funded by the war industry at places like West Point's Combating Terrorism Center uh, at other, you know, kind of defense analyst organizations like RAND. You're seeing a lot of alarmism come back, and I'll get to it in Africa later. You're seeing it in Afghanistan, too. All this reporting saying, oh, there's a, a renewed connection between al-Qaeda and the Taliban, and they're going to bring back the safe haven myth, this idea that you know terrorism is way worse if they have like a safe haven that they can kind of stay in in a cave or whatever. Of course, that's all been like deflated time and again, but- I'm afraid that he'll be susceptible to that kind of logic and will be afraid that if he pulls everybody out and then something does go wrong and there is an attack or whatever in America, or if something obscene happens, like some sort of mass beheading of like adulterous women, alleged adulterous women in a stadium again in Afghanistan, that he'll be criticized as cutting and running. So that's why I expect a hedge. And, and it worries me because, you know, if Biden doesn't pull them out during his tenure, we are actually and realistically, this could happen, staring down the barrel of, you know, 20, what, 24 years of Afghan war. I mean, that's that's beyond absurd.
so let's uh let's move on to Iraq for a minute. Um we are about just over a year from the most recent major demonstrations in Iraq, also just right around a year from the assassination of Qasem Soleimani, which was a a big blow to our our connections not only with Iran but with Iraq. Um uh, going back to the uh, protests for a moment, you know, the Iraqis protesting corruption in their government, uh, violence against protesters, low wages, basic services from the government. Um, and then you have a country that, moving back from the protests a little bit, that has been absolutely destroyed by ISIS, by their, their invasion of it. That, you know, places like Mosul in the north and Ambar province in the west, basically, I mean, they exist, but they're their rubble with bodies everywhere um and you know we we the isis invasion was preempted by america's own withdrawal of a majority of their forces and they only ended up uh that the majority of forces that guys like i like me and also like bt trained um ran they sold their weapons or left them behind for other other parties to to do with as they seemed. Um, but now that ISIS has been pushed down significantly, um, it's important to note that Iraqis did most of the heavy lifting during that um, during that time. But uh, in country, there are still more than a million unsettled refugees, people who cannot return to their homes, probably because they're completely bombed out. Um, of course, they're dealing with COVID, which is hard for any country to deal with, but especially hard because of our sanctions and destroyed infrastructure. Um, so, you know, my only thought about it in terms of moving forward, you know, I, I think that Iraq should be given all the money and supplies it needs to rebuild their country. But as America, we our our country has never put that made that a priority. <clears throat> My my guess is that Biden will help that situation more than Trump, but much like you mentioned, Danny, about him hedging, I don't expect much more than beyond that, that the, the billions and billions that should go to a country that our military destroyed um, probably won't get the help that they need. You know, the, when the Iraq veterans against the war were founded, um, in what, 2004, you know, I was talking to Kelly Darty recently, who was one of the co-founders and, you know, one of their original platforms was, you know, not just like troops home, but reparations for the Iraqi people, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, I mean that, that, that look, no one's even considering reparations for chattel slavery in the United States. Right. And then like, uh, you know, century of Jim Crow and then de facto Jim Crow that goes on today. Uh, certainly there's no talk of reparations for Iraq. What we see instead is this just like a continued infusion of defense money, right, of military money, of, of military training and, and weapons and these sorts of things. Um, my take on Iraq, wh- okay, what worries me about Iraq is Iraq matters because humans live there and because it's an important country. But from an American strategic perspective and what concerns me in terms of the decisions that are being made, okay, and I don't mean sound obtuse, I will say this. Iraq doesn't matter that much any longer, except insofar as it worsens, it only stands to worsen our relations with Iran and the possibility of a war there. What you have in Iraq is American soldiers who literally do not know what they're doing there. 
right? They, I mean, could, could an American soldier really explain what their purpose is in Iraq, right? They, they say, it's like Syria. They say it originally, well, we're here to fight ISIS as part of the ISIS coalition. But if you actually listen to what the generals and the analysts and the national security officials on the civilian side say, it's always the same thing. It's like, no, we're actually here to balance Russia and Iran and Syria and Iran in Iraq. We're there as part of a proxy war, and we've made ourselves our own proxies in our own proxy war. And we've <laughs> thrown these guys into these bases and turned them into rocket magnets for vaguely Iranian-inflected and sometimes more so Iraqi militias to shoot rockets at whenever we do something new and aggressive and obscene at Iran or whenever Iran needs to shore up its hardliner credentials with, you know, certain elements of their public, especially when their economy is flailing and they're doing bad with COVID. Right. And so they're there. They're magnets. They're rocket magnets. And the problem is the problem is the toughness dilemma, the Democrats dilemma of toughness. They must always they feel seem extra tough because they're afraid the Republicans will swift vote them. And I say this all the time, right? John Kerry, when they swift voted and tried to say he was like a coward and he wasn't a good soldier, even though he was like highly decorated as a Navy swift boat captain. So, but they'll get a swift boat you anyway, the Republicans, but they're so afraid of it that we like hedge and we always tack right. And they always move the goalposts, the Republicans do. So I'm afraid that if Americans die under Biden's watch, in Iraq, in one of these, you know, barrages of missiles, like if, a, you know, if an unlucky hit hits an unlucky soldier who chose the unlucky porta potty. And it's it's funny, but it's not because it really happens, as you know, as, as we know, um, that Biden will feel obliged to respond to Iran. So, you know, I cannot see a situation where, you know, it, our presence in Iraq is anything but destabilizing and anything but increasing the likelihood that uh, a more dangerous conflict with Iran, uh, whether it be proxy or in some cases genuine, like bombing or, or, or then Iran unleashing some of its folks on us across the region, right? Because we have lots of targets in the Middle East, including floating targets. Uh, that all worries me. And, and, and so I'm afraid that in the process of hedging, he's going to actually set a trap for himself. Um, and it's a trap that was he, he that Trump bequeathed him, uh, not literally because Trump's not dead, um, you know, and I'm not even going to say what I'm thinking about that. But um, but, you know, I think that, you know, this trap was left for him. I'm afraid he's going to keep uh, the American military in the jaws. Right. Ready for that bear trap to to potentially close and then is going to feel obliged to respond, which could cause an escalation and more troops there. And, uh, you know, the whole thing is is just a big mess there is nothing rational about the american presence in iraq and of course there never really was but it's even more it's even more absurd today right i i think about that a lot about like i have to think that there are people who get that right that are in positions and they understand like hey us being there is leads to the potential of escalation which only makes things worse and there has to be some people in some of the apparatus who are willing to push back against that. Now, what I want to know is why, like, who are the people that are pushing back against this narrative and who want us to continue this and why? And like, I feel like if we, if we were able to get that message out to more folks as to understanding why, I think more people would be on the side of, okay, it's time for us to leave. 
but we never get that side from the official state apparatus, right? Well, yeah, I mean, well, one thing I'll just add to that is that most of the people he picked, as much as I've, like, attacked, I mean, really lambasted his his picks, like, every one. I mean, I've really made a career of it, like, for two months. But as bad as they are in terms of their military-industrial complex ties and their record as arsonists put in charge of the fire brigade on things like Syria, Libya, Yemen – I mean, every one of them, including now, finally, Joe Biden, these guys aren't bullish on the Iraq war. Every single one of these men and women would tell an interviewer and have that the Iraq invasion of 2003 was one of the great foreign policy disasters of American policy. That's the difference of when you get. And it's a real difference. I mean, it's not just at the margins. I mean, compared to, you know, some of the neocon like hawks that are in the Republican Party. You know, when you put the Democrats in charge that at least they're going to say Iraq was bad, even if they supported the time. But that is an irony, isn't it, that, you know, you've got these people in there who every one of them thinks the Iraq war was a mistake. But I'm not sure that any of the senior people, I can't speak to their mid-level staff, but uh, I don't I don't see any one of the senior people that he's appointed to the national security establishment who would then go so far as to say Iraq is the greatest strategic disaster, you know, in modern American history. But dot, dot, dot. Uh, we kind of have to stay because uh, ISIS, uh, Iran, uh, I don't know. We don't want to look weak, do we? <laughs> I mean, that's 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 how American policy is made. That's the philosophy. Right. Ugh. That's just depressing. It's just so it's so cowardly to just sit there and say, we know there's a problem, but we're not going to do anything about it because we don't want to appear a certain way. And I know that's all politics, but fuck, like these are like millions of people's lives on the line. And I would add, you know, you mentioned all the issues with it, but also like just the fact that like Iraq is important because if it, if it's destabilized, like it's only going to worsen in the rest of the region. It's only going to make all the other problems in the whole region worse. And if we do nothing or we keep going along this weird path of, like exiting American military presence and pushing the contractor, pushing the JSOC, pushing the more, you know, proxy forces. Like we're, it's not, it's just going to lead us to have less and less uh, ability to do anything about it concretely. Well, Henry, Henry, you were involved in, you know, the more overt, version of the, um, you know, kind of security force assistance, um, training proxies, you know, uh, when it was pretty overt, I mean, by that, you know, when it was like direct tactical army units, especially MPs like yourself, you know, training the, the official army we were raising in Iraq. Um, you know, how did that experience, I guess, um, you know, influence the way you think about whether or not, you know, training advising and assisting foreign forces constitutes you know combat or 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 an intervention because you'll see i think what you're going to see when it comes to iraq and, and, and lots of other things is you'll see the biden administration re-inject the quibbling language of the obama years where everyone was arguing the semantics of what constitutes a boot on the ground and right. what constitutes a combat soldier which like i love language and therefore i like to look to it but I mean, that that got pretty absurdist and the Republicans weren't wrong 
when they started pointing that out. I mean, they were wrong because like everything that was in their hearts was black mostly and horrifying. Um, but they weren't wrong. And I'm afraid we're going to go back to that. So I guess, I mean, what did your experience doing that influence the way you view this kind of stuff? Uh, it, it does in a few different ways. Um, it, it, there was always such a, a, a learning curve to everything that we did. And by, and on learning curve, I'm not just talking about the, the Iraqis that we tried to train, but for us too, in terms of, you know, you, you, you bring with you, you know, just the, the platoon or squad, whatever you happen to have and whatever training they have is what training they have. And it doesn't, it doesn't allow for, you know, the two or three guys possibly in your squad or platoon that, that absolutely hate Iraqis because they're on their second or third tour. So trying to train them in any kind of a comprehensive unnerving way is just completely difficult. But the, the thing that I look back to, the thing that is most, one of the things that is most powerful to me, aside from stories uh, like hearing about the, the Iraqi, you know, battalions, them, their battalions and divisions folding before they even got into contact with ISIS. Um, it's about that we don't understand, we don't even, we don't even have enough understanding to understand the economics of bringing the equipment that we gave to the Iraqis where like, you know, and, I, and I've mentioned this quite a few times on the podcast, but, you know, Iraq, uh, Iraqi police recruits or officers, however you want to coin them, there would, there often wasn't very much of a difference. The guys would go sell their Glock. They got issued a brand new Glock 19 pistol, you know, for, for police work. Um, and they would go and sell it in the market. Why? Cause they were super evil. No, it was because it was worth so much more than they had ever made over the course of six months or a year uh, of wages if not even longer that was one of the big things that the the pro protests the ongoing protests are about is the low wages or late wages wages that are paid you know nine months or 12 months once later um and so it it really required a lot of effort to take a a specific amount of of, of recruits and actually turn them into something that an American police officer would say this person has some skills. You know, I don't understand Arabic or anything, but they know how to handcuff somebody and they know how to do this and do that. But as with our, our military machine, as each new unit would come and take over the jobs that I had there, everybody has a different idea of what is the best way to do it. We weren't, we didn't, um, aside from the very basics, you know, the very basics in terms of using hand signals to, to do that kind of thing, we, we didn't have anything else to, uh, um, to use to get across what was, what was happening. But I think that we, did, we didn't even understand what it was doing to the, to the local economics, to the, the local, local social and political scene. I remember being just freaking flabbergasted being told that a local prison that was near some of my, my operations area um, was entirely corrupt. Is like the entire the entire working staff of this prison is corrupt. If you want somebody out, even if their sentence hadn't uh, had already ended, they probably had to pay a bunch of money, and that was something that we never understood while we were there. We knew that there was quote unquote corruption, but we didn't understand what we were looking at in the first place, and we didn't have any resources to fight that corruption either. Because how do you do it when it's a s somewhat working part of of a of a place's culture? 
but no, it, it was at, at the end of the day, it was entirely for naught. You know, it, 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 uh, I don't think that we left much of an appreciable anything in terms of police force or army force that the Iraqis could use that they could count on, which is why, you know, that the, you know, the Kurds uh, coming south to help and, uh, the, um, and the fact that they actually expelled ISIS. I mean, they're not in, ISIS isn't completely gone, but the fact that the Iraqis themselves did it mostly without American support, aside from some air support, I think that that's, a, that's an, an impressive and huge thing. But it's be, out of survival. It's not because we did anything, we left anything there that was going to help the Iraqis in a major way. No, I, I think that what's interesting about what you're saying there and... It, 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 I think it relates to to Africa uh, a bit, and so and we can we can pivot to that if if you guys want, or we could hold it. But I I'll say like what you raised there is is a bit of nuance and complexity that's just so often missing in the discussions of this because the the host government and the political, ethnic, socio cultural, and you know, just general, uh, you just general value and legitimacy of the host government and its military matters a whole lot in a security force assistance mission. And so, you know, I've been writing, for example, about about Africa again recently because you know how I do, and like it's I think pretty important because one of the things I said in this last article was. You know, I titled it, this is at antiwar.com, ISIS Africa Alarmism, brought to you context free by defense analysts, you know, by defense analysts. And what I what I say, the the context that's missing, I say, uh, you know, that these people, these analysts are interested in attack numbers and statistics. Sure. But and then I write conflict context, local grievances and catalyzers, the counterproductivity of past Western military interventions. And then this is the key or the tainted and dubiously legitimate regimes they usually back, not so much. And so, you know, the, the Iraqi military, you know, did do the lion's share of the fighting and put itself together, but they, of course, did fall apart, to, you know, when ISIS first comes through. But before that, and you probably remember this, I mean, units that we worked with and that we were, you know, whatever, advising and, and definitely partnering, that was the big term back then, right? Put an, put an Iraqi between you and the problem. I was like, that that's so patronizing. I don't even know what to do with it, but okay. Um, it, it, but what, you know, and it was a great buzzword, but what was interesting about it was they were torturing prisoners. You know, my Colonel sent a special patrol to seize the prisoners that we had earlier in the day handed over to the Iraqi national police to save them from the torture that we got a tip that they were undergoing and they were. And so it just like, we, we, we throw military solutions and we throw things like advising and assisting and training and arming uh, at these problems as though they're in as, as though they're solves, right? They're solutions in and of themselves. We pay very little attention to the host government. So you get the Maliki regime. One of the reasons that they fall apart in Mosul is Maliki had removed some of the most competent generals and officers and replaced them with, you know, political partisan loyalists from his own faction of the Shia faction, right? Uh, the faction within the faction. And then it, these were political generals and, and they had ghost soldiers on their roles and all this and corrupt. And I don't know, it just seems like we miss all of that. So 
when they throw a bunch of drone, contractor, commandos, advise and assist, special operators, they just throw it at the wall and see what sticks. And it's all done like an absence of context and without understanding that the well is poisoned from the start if you're doing it with corrupt proxies. And that just always just jumps out at me. And Africa, of course, is like the key element where I think we're seeing some of this. Yeah. Um, and, and uh, you know, it, there, there was never a, there was never any training or even acknowledgement of the idea that here we are arriving to a country that is, you know, is 30, 30 to 40 years deep. If we, if we can go back further historically, but that the 30 to four years deep in the choices and, and, draconian measures of our imperialism there which even if there were you know ips that wanted to do a good job that wanted to be part of it i wouldn't blame any of them for having a natural distrust of anything that we did because it was it it could just immediately be turned around so easily and they had so little control over what that happened um, you know, that changing out a commander, changing out a unit, going from army soldiers to Marines or back again, um, you know, coalition forces, meaning that sometimes Poland or some other countries might have some little small sector. There's so many irons in the fire. You have to pick one and completely detangle it before you can get to the next. And it just became that, that, you know, as we're, we're picking back up the latest, the latest mess up, the latest fuck up. And we're going to work on that for a while, but it's not, it's, it, it doesn't change anything. And that was where I was when I was on my second tour in Iraq is that I knew we weren't changing anything. I knew we weren't going to substantially help the people of Iraq in some measurable way. I just wanted everybody to make home alive on both, on both ends. And, you know, I, I, I didn't want to hurt anybody and I didn't want any of our guys to get hurt. Those were the only things, only metrics that I could discernibly have any, kind of control in and that's immediately where i went to so danny if you want we can go ahead and move over to uh to africa now oh i just wanted to say one thing um Shoot, man. i i'm you know how we have the like bootstraps myth of like pull yourself up by your bootstraps and you can make it regardless of the situation i think that that applies in our military context as well is that we can assume that we can go to, to a country and that they will just understand the way that, that like how to build a nation. Yeah. See right? it as goodwill. Yeah. 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 And we don't, we don't know a, a we don't know a fucking thing about nation building because we've never actually had to do it. Like it, we've been so far removed from our own nation building that we have this idea that like, Oh, if we just, change these specific circumstances in this country, then they'll just get it somehow. And like, that is clearly not the case. Just like you said, like, if we're not leading with the diplomatic arm of, hey, what do you need? Let's get you what you need. And then we can start from there. But instead, it's just, hey, we always tell people, hey, this is what you need, or we're going to do this in your country, and you're going to like it. You know, and like, and then we get pissed off when it doesn't work. And it's like, well, of course it didn't work because we built this house on fucking sandpaper and it's not going to get anywhere. <laughs> and I, I don't know. I just thought that that was like, it, it's, it's just that translation of into our military policy of our own weird economic policy of everybody just has to figure it out. 
and we'll just throw money and people at the problem until they do. But eventually they'll realize we're here to help <laughs> and, it, and it'll be okay. It'll be okay. Yeah, it'll be okay until you redeploy, which means it's now okay for you, but it sure as hell isn't okay for them. Exactly. Uh, it's just, it's, it's nonsensical. It's not really strategic thinking. And it has nothing to do with actually helping the people in the places that we send people to die. But yeah, let's let's move on to Africa. Um so I didn't uh I didn't make any specific notes about Africa stuff. Um what um how do you guys wanna wanna do that part? I I mean I just wanted to bring up the fact that like you did hint at Danny the fact that there's a kind of similar situation. It's always, it's always again of like, we're not asking people what they need or what they want help with. We're just telling people, Hey, look, we're going to do this in your country. And we might make some concessions with our agreements with them, but really it's about imposing our will. And so I am concerned about, you know, what are the different ways that you think this is going to play out in Africa? And on top of the fact that China with the Belt and Road Initiative is making real headway in Africa and like how how are our interests going to really conflict? Yeah, so there's there's so much to say there. I'm glad you brought up the China element. So, okay. When I did the overview and covered the Africa section, the the highlights that I wanted to hit, you know, I've done a few articles recently on it and there's so many deep directions, you know, that I could get lost in, but, you know, Africa worries me with the Biden administration for the same reason it worried me and it escalated so intensely for the Obama administration. And that is because uh, a few reasons. One, it figures pretty prominently in the minds of certain people at the Pentagon certain people in the capital and definitely in a lot of these like defense analysis expert and also influential think tanks, uh, because specifically for interventionist hawks, particularly like the liberal internationalist, liberal interventionist types, Africa as a continent, uh, as I write, has been both like a Petri dish, a proving ground, uh, and kind of this like paradigm. In other words, Uh, It's a petri dish for the problems that they think they can solve, like, uh, you know, ungoverned spaces and, uh, you know, climate change and poverty and, you know, all these ethnic like issues and, you know, potential genocides. And, oh, my God, now, like, Sam Power is coming back into power and, like, she's going to be in charge of what, USAID? Like, Jesus, she's going to have, like, like genocide watchers everywhere. Like, she's going to arm her USAID people with rifles. And the thing is... It's not that genocide is not a real thing and that some of her academic work wasn't important, but the idea that intervention uh, by the West is always the answer, especially when there's such a propensity to uh, exaggerate and raise alarm about what's actually a genocide, right? But nevertheless, they see this as kind of, you know, the, so it's a petri dish for the problems, but it's a proving ground for the paradigm of the liberal, polite interventionists which is that you can use this abstraction, this low-intensity, tech-savvy war of like drones, special operators, advisors, local proxies, and then clandestine intelligence missions 
you know, you can use this to win wars and to like move policy and, and kind of, you know, change the facts on the ground. Now it's failed time and again, it failed for eight Obama years and it failed even more mightily in many cases in four Trump years. However, uh, they still believe it. So that's the first thing that bothers me. The second thing that worries me about Biden coming in is that the very things that he's most likely to be persuaded by, uh, they all exist in Africa. So the first one is the the stuff that I wrote about nancywar.com this week, two days ago, which is that there's a lot of alarm raising coming from West Point, coming even from UK defense analysts, you know, organizations and defense studies departments in their, you know, military funded, otherwise, you know, masquerading as academia locales. Of course, in this case, it's defense, uh, you know, spelled with a C because it's, you know, it's England. So it's more sophisticated. But nevertheless, you're seeing a lot of AFRICOM alarmism like uh, ISIS related, like, oh, ISIS is on the rise in Africa. And I deflate that pretty horribly and and effectively, at least in the anti-war column. But it, it's something that I think he'll be uh, susceptible to this idea that, hey, uh, ISIS is on the rise and ISIS is synonymous with evil. And so we might we might have to, like, you know, escalate a little bit. But it's great because it's Africa. So we don't they don't Africa doesn't even have a lot of soldiers. They don't have a lot of resources. They're like fifteen hundred like permanently assigned people, you know, in uniform. So, hey, we'll just we'll we'll test this theory a little more. But the really troubling one is what you brought up, which is uh, China, Russia. Because in the 2018 National Security Strategy, uh, GPC, Great Power Competition, right? Great buzzword, great acronym, has been made the primary threat, right? The primary strategy and focus of the U.S. military. Of course, that's ridiculous, and it inflates those threats, and it ends up being aggressive and counterproductive. But nevertheless, it's going to stick around, and especially with like all of the Russia, Putin, proxy and sort of like stooge stuff about trump that was thrown around you know the democrats have made everything about russia for so long and they're both trying to outhawk each other the democrats and republicans on china and the fact that there's just enough of a kernel of truth to the fact that there's particularly chinese influence mostly economic but there is one military base in Djibouti, and i think another one coming which is nothing compared to our you know kind of you know host of bases that have been exploding across africa but there's just enough truth that i'm afraid and AFRICOM is savvy, too, but they're PowerPoint savvy. They're really good at finding captains who write vaguely well, not for the earth, but for the military, uh, to write these new strategies. And so what they've done to align and nest, right, all those like terms from the military to you know align their priorities with the broader national security statement, they've made their primary number one listed line of effort GPC, right, great power competition. And they're going to point to particularly the Horn of Africa, because that's where China's one base is. And I'm afraid that we'll get pulled in there. And as for my predictions bit and how I've been a bit prescient recently, wouldn't you know that there was literally a headline, and I, and I reposted on Twitter after someone else tagged me in it, that Emmanuel Macron of France, since their war in West Africa is falling apart, right? Five French soldiers, KIA, in the first five days of you know the new year and then maybe they hit it with another wedding which is such a war and terror cliche guys you know if you're if you're gonna massacre civilians just don't do a wedding you know what about a christening why haven't we hit any christenings with our drones you know what i mean but i mean i'm, I'm being wildly flipping dark here but france's war is falling apart failing by every single metric every single one and i said hey watch out in my first article on molly i said watch out be prepared that macron and biden could become chums 
they kind of like each other despite the age gap. They both speak that like vague internationalist, multilateral intervention language, right? They're sophisticates. They're urbane imperialists. But sure enough, there was a headline yesterday that in Macron's New Year's like talk to his troops, you know, it wasn't like on New Year's, I don't think, but he gave like this talk to the to the military. And he basically said, like, he's hoping Biden will basically help him out, you know, that Biden is going to have to infuse more troops, not just in Africa, but in the greater Middle East. And look, this is this is him asking for a bailout. He's the Goldman Sachs of failed African adventures asking for a bailout. Right. And it's going to be like GM and all these people all over again. And he's probably going to give golden parachute bonuses to his failed generals. And it's going to be the same thing all over again. And I'm taking this analogy far, but I feel really good about it. But the point is, I'm really worried about Africa for all those reasons. The guys and I love doing the podcast, being able to share our experiences in the military with allies and supporters means the world to us. But we can't do all the work. We need you to share an episode of ours with someone, anyone whom you might think would be affected by it. Young people looking to join the military or parents advocating for one, conscientious citizens who care about the violence the U.S. wages in their name, advocates for women and people of color who understand the harsh environment the military creates for minorities and inflicts on minorities across the globe, and anyone else you think it might affect, please take a moment and share this with them. Our podcast is supported in a few different ways. First, there's Patreon, where we're blessed to have an array of wonderful supporters helping the guys and I pay for some of the podcast expenses. Those who contribute $10 a month or more will be mentioned right here as an honorary producer, helping keep you, our listeners, stocked with new episodes. But you don't have to contribute $10 a month to help us. For as little as a dollar a month, you can help keep us going, paying for hosting and storage fees, transcribing old and new episodes, promoting and expanding the podcast, and more I'm sure I can't think of at the moment. So let's bring out our honorary producers, and they are Will Arenz, Fahim Shirazi, James O'Barr, Adam Bellows, Eric Phillips, Paul Appel, Julie Dupree, Thomas Benson, Emma P., Janet Hansen, Tristan Oliver, Daniel Fleming, Michael Karen, Jason, Zach H., Ren Jacob, and the Status Quo Podcast. Your contributions are wonderfully helpful to us. Thank you so much. However, if Patreon isn't your style, you can contribute directly to us through PayPal at paypal.me forward slash Fortress on a Hill. Or please check out our awesome store on Spreadshirt.com for some great Fortress merch. The link is in the show notes. And now, let's get back to the podcast. Do you think there's a way that we can like push the, well, I'm hoping, I'm hoping that there are people in the state department who are finally like, okay, we need to stop being the military or the like diplomatic arm of the DOD and start actually doing our fucking jobs. And I hope that that means that there will be people who will then like try to listen to what the, the countries in Africa 
want and like what they need. And then maybe like we can temper at least somewhat our like footprint militarily with some actual diplomatic like help. So <laughs> I don't know, but oh, I don't, no. I don't see that happening. No. Well, you know, here, here's the thing. I, I think that there are, Feos, foreign area officers who like, you know, they kind of work with, uh, I think they fall under DIA and they do work with state largely because they're in the embassies and all that. And then, of course, within the within the recesses of Foggy Bottom, right, the actual mid-level experts who get, you know, like Milton, they get thrown into the basement and they get their red stapler taken from them. You know, there's <laughs> plenty of professional bureaucrats, both in the military and especially in the State Department, who specialize their entire careers on Africa because they are geeks and because they love it. And in many cases, because they actually care about Africans to some extent. Uh, And they've been yelling about this, that like, hey, militarizing AFRICOM is a big mistake. And this is like counterproductive. But that's the whole point. They get treated like Milton because the political appointees come in and the combat arms officers who actually run things like AFRICOM and make the decisions, right? And they have a lot in common in certain sense with the political appointees because they don't have expertise. They have leadership and charisma, meaning sociopathy largely. <laughs> but but what like but what the thing is no one listens to the experts. And it has always been thus. And I study Africa a lot under the Reagan and even the tail end of the Carter administration. Uh, and all our proxy wars during that era, usually surrounding supporting apartheid, by the way. And one of the things you note is that when you read these long ass books on it, they they constantly quote the mid-level guys in the State Department who are like, no, this is a terrible idea. We're so opposed to this, but they they don't get listened to. And I just don't think that Biden's political appointees uh, really much care for nuance and complexity. And they are thinking big and they take pride in their big thinking and they don't like details and they don't like splitting. What they like is lumping, but lumping problems together and vaguely generalizing and missing the nuance. That has always been a forever war formula. And nowhere has that been more traffic, uh, tragic in many cases uh, in the long run than in Africa since forever. So uh, for Yemen, just in the la- <clears throat> in the last couple of weeks, uh, Mike Pompeo has been able to designate uh, the Houthis as a terrorist organization, which until that designation changes, which incoming uh, Biden execs are, are saying that they will review it. It wasn't saying specifically that it will be changed, but that will make it a lot harder for humanitarian aid to get in the country, which, of course, is exacerbating an already horrific uh, situation. Um, our participation there, providing refueling <clears throat> and intelligence sharing, has allowed uh, Saudi Arabia and um, their partners in in Yemen with, with the UAE to continue uh, bombing the hell out of any anything that they can. It's still considered the world's largest cholera out, outbreak, um, and. You know, my 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 big thought about it is that, you know, why is this horribly, horribly awful humanitarian disaster separate from the war part of it not being dealt with on a bigger level? So I I I, I would 
hope and pray that Biden does a lot. I don't know that he will do a lot, but certainly they will probably have to do something because the situation just has become that unhinged, that untenable on a humanitarian level. Um, what do you think about that, Danny? Well, first of all, I mean, the, the Trump decision to, you know, label the Houthis, like, you know, the terrorist, you know, it, it also is really about Iran, you know? Yeah. I mean, in many ways, Yemen, in Iraq, we've put ourselves in the role of proxies. And don't get me wrong, like, we also create death and destruction for Iraqis as a, you know, as a function of that. But, you know, in Yemen, Yemen is, Yemen is the, is the great crime of, in many cases, of the second half of the war on terror. And, and because its ramifications on victims have been so very overt and so very fast and so very quickly overt and so very quickly just been horrifying and specifically focused on civilians. I can't help but wonder if in the end, it will be Yemen that is the stain, the ultimate primary stain on the on, on our entire generation of Americans. I mean, and it ought to be, by the way, it'll be competing with Iraq and the Civil War. But I mean, Yemen is another one of those places, just like I mentioned in Africa, where there is a substitution of vague generalities and strategic buzzwording and alarmist threats for nuance and complexity. I mean, there are some really smart people that Biden has appointed to top positions in terms of just their raw intelligence. Jake Sullivan is a brilliant guy, but, and he's the, he's probably one of the brightest of the bunch in terms of like what he knows. Cause he is a reader and he is a geek, you know? And I think that part of it, by the way, I have an obsession with him as you know, he is my blind spot. <laughs> um, you know, he's taking over Mike Pompeo's old role as my nemesis, but he, uh, you know, I think that he maybe substitutes some of his like tough guy hawkishness for the fact that he's really a geek and he's afraid to just let himself be one, but that's probably his best side if he didn't use it for evil. But the thing is, I, even the smartest of the bunch on these issues, I mean, could not hold their own in a discussion on the basic contours of what's really happening in Yemen, what that conflict's really about on the ground. I mean, in terms of like Houthis and, you know, AQ in the, uh, you know, Arabian Peninsula. Yeah. ACAP, right. Yeah. Who you probably know a bunch about, I imagine. I'd be interested to (laughs) know your thoughts on Yemen specifically, actually, Kagan. Um, You know, they don't understand this conflict. They can't explain it particularly well. And I, I mean, Jake Sullivan could probably make everyone else look stupid who doesn't know anything about Yemen, but I could name 10 people who could make him look very stupid on this issue. And, and of course, and this is the Biden bunch that's brighter than your average bears. But what gets missed in that lumping in that fake generalities is that the reality is the Houthis have never been all that tied to Iran, for example, and that the Houthis have never, despite yelling down with America and all those things, some of that is sloganeering because that was driven largely by America's obscene role in the greater Middle East and, and negative effects on the Shia peoples therein and was really heightened when their children started getting bombed and starved to death inside the blockade. That could have only happened if America greenlighted and then supported it directly. And so 
that is a very different thing indeed than an actual intent to attack the homeland of the United States. And it certainly isn't driven. If that, if that did exist, believe that we caused it. If a Houthi, in fact, ever comes to the United States and blows something up or takes a shot at someone, uh, it will be because of us in a very direct way. Look, most of these Houthis, most of that region in particular of Yemen, they didn't give the United States a whole ton of thought until certainly 9-11. So, uh, and definitely more so since the Obama green light of the war in 2015. So that's my general thought on it. But, but Kagan, I bet you have some interesting stuff uh, and thoughts on Yemen in particular. <laughs> Sorry, there was a motorcycle. Um, yes, yeah. Like, I think the big thing, like, I think the thing that is hard for people to understand is the fact that Yemen was two countries until pretty recently. So there is a vast difference between the people in the north and the people in the south. And where the Houthis are, like they are first and foremost, they are nationalists or like tribalists. You know, they want their region of Yemen to be autonomous because the Yemeni government that came after their civil war was absolutely shitty and did nothing but try to exploit them. And so, of course, they were pissed off. And it's like, I, again, it's just historical context, you know, missing from a lot of our talk on foreign policy, which is something we talk about all the time. But I think it is really, like you said, to designate this group that is more about self-empowerment, like trying to create their own vision for themselves as some kind of group that has these huge designs on like inflicting terror on the world. It's just nonsense and bullshit. And it does nothing but continue to exacerbate the fact that over 80% of the country in Yemen is dealing with serious hunger, serious uh, disease, because not only do they have COVID, but cholera, as Henry talked about. And it's like, and also, I mean, you mentioned Iran, but like, it's also for Saudi Arabia. Like we want to continue our buddy-buddy relationship with Saudi Arabia. And if that means continuing the richest country in the region's fight against the poorest country in the region, we're going to do that. Because people make that stupid political calculus of, well, we need to help the Saudis. And it's, uh, it just pisses me off. Like more, more examples of people not getting a voice because they don't have money and resources. So we don't listen to them. And on like, I'm scared. Like I am scared that the country is going to be in a serious, serious. I mean, they already are in a serious problem, but like, it's only going to get worse if we don't try to help them diplomatically and economically and medically, like medically first, they need help so bad. And yeah, I'm just, I'm concerned. Like they're sure ACAP has issues, but they also are in a specific group. They are more in the South of Yemen and maybe that's where we should be focusing more. But Again, like all of our military operations do nothing but exacerbate the problem. And when we continue to give aid to Saudi Arabia and the GCC, like we're only helping those countries' interests. We're not helping the people on the ground. Yeah, there's no there's no way to talk about Yemen, of course, without talking about Saudi Arabia. And 
people look at Yemen through the lens mistakenly of Iran and Saudi Arabia as like big cold war in the Persian Gulf and all that, which is often a hot war. But of course, Saudi Arabia has been attempting to and somewhat successfully dominating Yemen and invading and trying to lean on Yemen for the longest time. I mean, this is a very old thing. And the Saudis and the Egyptians fought a proxy and somewhat literal war there during the uh, during the end of the Nasser, you know, uh, presidency in Egypt. So we're talking like after Suez, there's this big like intra-Arab proxy war between the more like na- like national Arab nationalist, Marxist, vaguely socialist inflected Soviet bloc folks. And then like the U.S. backed uh, theocrats in many cases and, and different kind of autocrats. And so this has been playing out for a long time. Iran wasn't as involved in that at the time, uh, except in so far that they were, they would actually be on the American side because this was the time of the Shah when he was another one of our fun, you know, dictatrices of the world that, uh, you know, John Quincy Adams otherwise mentioned in a different setting. So look, this is an old story. And I just don't think that there are even five above lower level, above mid-level bureaucrats who could speak to any of that history in depth and thereby, uh, because they're not even interested in knowing it, certainly can't craft any sort of rational policy surrounding it. I mean, it's just such an important point. So what are we going to see in Yemen? Eh, I don't know, maybe some curtailed, minor curtailed arms sales to the Gulf states, maybe a little less overt U.S. support, um, and I guess that's better. Maybe the Houthis will even come off the list. But is there going to be a paradigm shift? Is America going to do the ethically required thing, the decent thing, and shut that war down through threatening the Saudis with yep. total expulsion from the Western Bloc? And I just don't know what we really have to lose in that formula. In fact, if we did do it, what a great way to pitch normalization of relations with a much more important country, Iran. I mean, I hope I mean, it's ridiculous that we would have to even think this way. That's like very much the nuclear option. And uh, ooh, pun almost intended. But it, <laughs> I just think this is really important. No, yeah, I totally agree. And like and think about how much that would go towards restoring our goodwill in the world. You know, if we are saying, hey, we are not supporting, like, in fact, we are, we are making the moves to end this and help the people, like, imagine how much better the world would think of us if we were to just completely reverse course. There are, there are so many opportunities for the United States to show, like, humility and decency and turn on a dime. And I, I mean, I would love to, you know, I'm sure that I would just like give in and take the bribes to the military industrial complex and be a monster like all the rest of them. I mean, I have a price. It's just too high. And no, <laughs> no one's offered it yet. I mean, I don't have any real ethics. No, but I like to think seriously that if you like put me in charge, I would just be like on a number of issues. I would literally go in front of like the world, like just make a speech that gets, you know, pitched everywhere because I'm the American president and be like, we we have been monstrous war criminals and the orchestrators of chaos in, you know, insert place here, in this case, Yemen. Mm-hmm. And we are profoundly sorry. And maybe I was even complicit before because I used to be a senator or whatever. But uh, I'm totally pivoting, like radically so. 
and like strap in folks because here's what's happening saudi arabia is cancel cultured okay <laughs> like if louis ck is gone and i'm not saying what he did wasn't awful like beheading sorcerers yes. and adulterous women ought to get you canceled in yes. the post me too era okay and and also starving babies it's like that's never cool me too aside and so like there are so many places where like hey they're done they're done they don't ever get an arm for us again until they do the following 15 things which they can't do or their regime collapses because it's built on the theocracy and the dictatorship and the oil well like so that's that but there's so many opportunities for that no one even thinks about it and like you might notice that was not in my predictions for the biden team <laughs> I, I think a lot of people gave Marion Williamson crap, but like her idea of building a department of peace and what peace building actually looks like and like creating mechanisms for building and maintaining peace instead of war and instead of deterrence, you know, it's like, wow. I mean, come on, like think about how much safer we would actually be if we were dedicated towards building and maintaining peace instead of weapons. Fuck. Like it's, yeah. And like, it's not like some vague notion of like, oh, kumbaya, let's all get along. It's like, here are specific strategic steps that, that build peace. And we could, we could do that, but yeah, I don't see this administration doing that at all. So what I was looking at is, you know, Obama had the Pacific pivot, which was the idea of we're going to move a lot of our forces and like our military strategic elements over to Westpac, you know, the whole uh, seventh fleet area basically. Um, And then Trump, what Trump did was take that and like, and Pompeo, they added India into that because they were thinking, Oh, let's be buddy, buddy with India. And we'll use them more as like a counterweight against China and Chinese aggression in like the South Asian area. So I am concerned that Biden is going to see the like bullshit political calculus of that and think that that is still a good thing. And I don't think that he's really going to do anything to like stop the things that have been put in motion. So like, what do you think about that, Danny? Yeah. I mean, throughout the campaign they were trying to like the democrats were trying to sort of like out hawk the republicans on china um for my sins i read everything written in foreign affairs by people who were appointed by biden and uh and it's a dark place don't do it just like <laughs> so I'll, I'll tell you what you need to know like don't read it okay i would it's the only time in my life i would encourage people not to read uh but uh, i i'm worried about it i i, I would like to think I would like to think that you'll see less of the wild just language of someone like Mike Pompeo saying like, uh, you know, Xi Jinping and his regime are Leninist Marxist. And it's like, Mike, I know that you were valedictorian of West Point and all because uh, wait a minute, he'll tell you, like, just wait for it. It's coming. But um, uh, would you like to actually describe the varying like nuances of you know different elements of kind of marxist and and communist theory because like do you even know what you're talking about when you call them like marxist less? anyway i'm hoping some of that won't you know won't be as bad but then at the same time it's like you know biden said that she is like a, a thug or something and there's just a lot of like troubling although more polite 
you know, fear mongering and, and hawkish talk from some of his people in their written stuff. And then, geez, I mean, Michelle Flournoy's article in Foreign Affairs, which I think was titled something like Avoiding War with China, but all it talks about is how to win and wage a war with China and that we have to be prepared to sink their entire, not just naval fleet, but merchant fleet. And what'd she say, 48 to 72 hours? Yeah, something really like, like that, yeah. That's crazy talk. That's cuckoo. You, you should be canceled for stupid. Like, I don't understand how you even get to be a serious figure, have a job. Like, do, there's got to be garbage man positions. Nothing wrong with garbage man. That's actually more honest work than colluding with the UAE at your think tank on behalf of the U.S. government and making a killing out of it. So I'm not even a, I'm not even insulting garbage man, but like she, she shouldn't be allowed to be even in a job anymore after talking about that. Certainly not a job where she can make a difference in like whether we kill or not. But I mean, this is this is scary. And uh, I mean, that's a tinderbox. I mean, the South China Sea. Uh, you know, I talk about the prop, the you know, the, the my sub title is something like the the threat of like you know ramming into trouble with China and then it's like literal though like actual that could happen like ramming of ships and stuff uh look the south china sea has china in it and that doesn't mean that we just have to like cede everything to china or say it's okay for them to do everything they do i mean most of the people that they're contesting those islands with in the south china sea are other asian countries you know i mean in the region because you know we're kind of far away i I used to be really into maps as a kid and I know they're not always to scale and, but eight inches on a small map is a lot of space, you know? Uh, And look, this is, this is crazy. The idea that we're in some sort of Thucydides trap whereby a rising power and the existing power, like inevitably end up at war. That's not always true, but it often is. There's a reason it gets a name. And if it's a Greek title to the name, it's probably old and it probably has some truth to it. And if it doesn't, we'll probably have to make it true just to satisfy you know, just to satisfy the trope. But I'm really, I'm really worried about that because it's so unnecessary. Economic competitors, even strategic competitors in some security realm, the idea that that should risk massive war is, is, is just insane. And and, and I, I keep like kind of going back to like, how long are delusions in Asia have gone on? You know, and it, it, it's a re- it's a real thing that we, we've had these fantasies that somehow that's the, the, the Western Pacific. It should be some sort of American lake and that Asian trade, the open door policy. We're talking like 1800s here, like late 1800s. You know, this is this is an old delusion that never really pans out. It actually caused the world war in the Pacific with Japan. Right. I'm not like taking Japan completely off the hook for its own militarism, but like a lot of that was driven by this. And so no one really talks about that. And I think when it comes to China, the last word one ultimately has to give to the movie, The Princess Bride. And so I'd recommend that, you know, Joe Biden and look, some of the hipsters on his staff who we all know ironically like cult classic 80 movies. Go back and watch The Princess Bride. I believe it's 1987 where they're sitting there talking as they like, you know, have their like intellectual duel over who drinks the poison, you know, and and I forget his name. But the guy says uh, to the main character, he says, uh, you know, you're a fool. You fell victim to one of the classic blunders, the most famous of which is never get involved in a land war in Asia, you know, and like that should be the final word. So listen, 
for all you cult classic late 30s, early 40s somethings who really like bars in Brooklyn where you can talk about, you know, whatever your new appointed job is in the cool administration or the think tank that you got and who you met within the Obama administration. Just watch that movie and let's avoid a land war in Asia. And Michelle, I don't even know if you watch movies or if like robots are allowed to, but if you do, you should consider it too. And sea wars, those aren't really all that much better because the first time a naval ship goes to the bottom of the ocean and 600 sailors die in a single incident. I will tell you, America has not seen anything like that in a really long time. And our people are not ready for it. And it only takes one A2 AD missile and it could very, very much happen. No, we've, we've never seen that kind of immense scale destruction for 70, 80 years now. People would just be losing their minds much more than they do even now with just cancel culture. I, yeah, I'm just, it, yeah, I, I agree with you. Like we are reaching that inflection point where a power on the decline and there's a power on the rise. And I like, I, we really have some, some existential crises facing us, not, and like we have to decide what's important like are we going to focus our attention on the fact that the planet doesn't have very long to live <laughs> or are we going to continue to focus on you know our stupid power struggles with other countries that finally want to get a taste of what we've had for the last hundred fucking years and yeah sure like china is being aggressive but they're they're just wanting to get on the train that we've been on like they just want to join it's just like what we did when we went in, when we started the whole Spanish-American war bullshit of us trying to get into imperialism. It's like, oh, we want to get in on that game. Like, let's let's do what the other European countries are doing. And like, China is just wanting a taste of what we've had, you know. And and I don't. I'm. It's not excusing. I'm not excusing it. I'm just trying to understand the reasoning behind it. And we need to figure out. Do we want to approach that from a military standpoint and say we need to figure out how to beat them? so that we can, again, be a deterrent for them? Or are we going to try and figure out a way that we can coexist and accomplish our goals together? And I, I just, we just don't seem to care about that. And I don't see that that is really getting any better unless something tragic happens. Now, these days, making making a deal with China usually just means decent economic incentives for their involvement. We, we bring a whole slew of death and destruction. And I'm sure that there's not that there aren't people that get hurt through that. But it's it's nothing compared to what us and our proxies, what Americans and their proxies end up doing in those same situations. I think that when we when we talk China, you know, and for the sake of time, I'm kind of breeze over Russia, except to say that Russia does not deserve breezing over in any real sense. But we've talked about it in some past pods and. The real threat, as I see it, ultimately, to mankind, right, beyond just America, is that in our attempts to be tough on Russia in, you know, say the Baltic, uh, as some sort of like pivot away from the idea that Trump was like a straight up asset of Putin, which is ridiculous. I mean, you know, there's smoke and there's problems with Trump and Russia, but like Trump was wildly aggressive, provocative, and nuclear saber-rattling, especially towards the end of his time. 
you know, in with Russia. Okay. Uh So that's a weird way for, you know, a useful idiot to act unless he's playing the real long game and he's fooled us all, but the guy ain't that brilliant and he can't keep a secret. And he would totally brag about, I'm so smart that I started to be hard on Russia and you didn't even notice it because I'm smarter than you think I am. And it's like, dude, you just gave it away. You're here (laughs) speaking. It's like, no, but I, but I have to say something great about myself. Like he doesn't need, there's no such thing as humble bragging to Trump because that requires the humble part of the humble brag, which anyway, but the point is, you know, he was tough on Russia. I'm afraid the Democrats are going to double down on that. And then I'm afraid that they're going to out hawk on China. And if they do, it'll be partly because it'll be partly because of the toughness dilemma, the Democrats dilemma of toughness. And it'll also be partly because their idea of like free trade, neoliberalism, TPP, which is a whole other topic and it's complex and it's not just evil, but this idea that you know, Demo- Democrats are a little more concerned with like slight nuance where they'll actually talk about soft power and they'll talk about like economic competition. But even the Democrats, the establishment ones, they tend to equate economic competition and apply their competing, right? The tools they use to compete, they, they, they usually do a, a very militarized version. And so I'm really worried that it, we're, always, we're always one mistake from the extinction of humanity in an afternoon. And uh, we're not scared enough of that. And that sounds like really hyperbolic uh, until you really look at what people who know this policy, whistleblowers and, and people who are experts on nuclear policy, what they say about all this and, and how much of a near run it's thing always a near run thing. It's always been. And, uh, you know, wouldn't that be the ultimate kick in like the de- the democracies? You know what? If it's the Democrats who like somehow end up doing something much worse than a monster like Trump because they like overcorrected and just did what they do and worried about toughness too much. And that's like kind of my last word on Russia too, which I think, you know, draw a circle around Russia and put like a red pin in every place that touches them and like expect to see an escalation of us influence there in some nefarious and largely aggressive way. And that's not, that's not a compliment to Putin and it's not an endorsement of anything he's about. It's just, that's how we do. We surround countries like Russia. And then we say, why are you so close to us? Back off, (laughs) back off. It's like, have you ever looked at a map of like NATO nuclear bases? Like, wait a second, who's, who's surrounding who kiddos (laughs) or those maps of Iran. It's the same thing. Anyway, enough about that. Yeah. But that, I think that's the key point, and or one of them. Well, what do you what do you think that we can do as regular people to like try to put like if if we're saying that the things that we care about are diplomacy, uh, like if we're gonna say that we want some kind of intervention, you know, that it has to be specific and short term and abbreviated and to the point, then like. I feel like there has to be a way for for regular folks to be pushing for that. Like because if if we don't if we don't as regular people take a stand against this and say the military more militarism is the last thing we need. We need x y and z. Like I think that the we know that the powers that be and the people who are invested in this are going to keep doing that and they're going to keep pushing the reasons why. And so we need to have a collective like voice and a collective point just to put to refute that with. And what do you think that is? 
you know, street activism and grassroots stuff is is sometimes poo-pooed when it comes to its ability to influence foreign policy. Right. And there's more than a kernel of truth in that. I mean, the U.S. government rarely is particularly responsive to its citizenry on foreign policy issues, especially. They don't really have to be. Much of the policy has always and is especially now made unilaterally in the White House uh, or certainly in the executive branch. But there are examples and that's not always the case. Right. So there's been some interesting like academic work done and, and, you know, policy and history work done on like the nuclear freeze movement. Right. Uh, And we're talking particularly in like the late 70s or early 80s. I mean, look, anytime you get Simon and Garfunkel to reunite after like a tragic and heartbreaking seven year breakup of the greatest duo of Queens, New York boys to get together and make a folk sound that makes everyone's life better just because it exists. And you get them to reunite for a concert for the nuclear freeze movement in like 1980. And it becomes a live album that changes a kid in Staten Island's life. I don't know who, when that happens, that's something big. And I'm, and I'm purposely fooling around, but there has been a lot of work showing that, look, there was a pretty mass movement and it was global. It wasn't just American, you know, calling out the hair trigger nuclear situation uh, between the Soviet Union, particularly and the United States. And and it really did pick up steam in like the late Brezhnev era. So like late seventies and look, that's not the thing, right? There's very rarely singular solutions or singular explanations. That's probably not the thing that gets Reagan to think a little more sensibly when Gorbachev comes to power uh, and start to make some really solid moves. Uh, but it, it had an effect and, and it had an effect on the Democratic Party also. I mean, it it did have an effect on the way some of the, you know, congressional representatives and even some of the senators thought about all this. And what worries me today is the casual, offhanded way Americans don't even speak as much as they ought to about things like nuclear, uh, nuclear warfare. Uh, and, and then, you know even conventional warfare against a major power. Like we're not scared enough of it. I don't know tactically movement wise, cause I'm not great at solutions and strategizing in that world. Like I'm new to it and I'm learning more than I'm prescribing, but I do think that somehow, some way the citizenry needs to be more scared. I hate to say that, but scared about the right things instead of the drummed up fears that we're told to be scared of. You know, it's more likely that dropping a couch on your own head is going to kill you than a foreign born terrorist. But we're scared to death of foreign born terrorists, you know, and uh, but there are things we should be scared of that we're not scared enough about. And then I hope that's not the only reason people do it. I hope it's all like decency and strategy and intellectual stuff and just general ethics. But we need the people to get involved because it has had effects before. And Biden is responsive sort of to pressure politically and uh the democrats will do like america like winston churchill said about america the democrats will do the right thing every time after they've exhausted all the other options basically after they've done all the wrong things first and so but that but when they're pressured when they have no other choice and i just i just hope that we can see grassroots citizen involvement on this issue russia china but on every issue because i do not believe that biden and his uh, unilaterally picked and sometimes not even requiring Senate sanction appointees. I mean, they're not going to move. They're not going to shift any paradigms or transform anything unless they're pressured to do so. And that's going to have to come from the people. We're on Twitter at Fortress on a Hill. 
and also at facebook.com at Fortress on a Hill. You can find our main blog page and our full collection of episodes at www.fortressonahill.com. iTunes, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, Patreon, Spotify. You name it, almost anywhere you listen, we're already waiting for you. And hey, we're always in the market for more Patreon supporters. Please consider becoming a patron at patreon.com. And if you're not into giving us a monthly payment, think about giving us a couple bucks on PayPal. The link is in the show notes. Skepticism is one's best armor. Never forget it. We'll see you next time. And listen to my song. I hope you'll pay attention. I will not be.